From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for Tuesday, March 10th, 2020. It's PGA Championship Week, and that means we got to get Ryan Ballinger back on the phone from the Golf News Net. Hello, Ryan. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeremy. How are you? I am fine. Um, it's been an interesting several weeks on the PGA Tour. Um some really hard golf, some major championship golf. And as Jeff Shackelford wrote in his blog, does the Monday rain make sawgrass easier um, and becomes a respite, which would seem blasphemous um, in, in other years and suddenly is uh, potentially proving true. To me, I look at this week in multiple ways. I look at this week in terms of it's the crown jewel and there's guys fit for sawgrass. Um, and then there's just people who just seem prime and fit for that golf course. And the name that keeps popping up in my head, Ryan, is Tommy Fleetwood. Uh, when is this gonna happen? And I feel like this week could be the week. You learn what you learn from, from Honda. And the correlation, I believe, between Honda and this week is that tough golf courses being played under super tough conditions and he was in between clubs and picked the wrong shot at the wrong time. And you've played enough Pete Dye golf courses to know that if you are in between clubs and try to do something ambitious, Pete Dye will probably hurt you. And I feel like that's what happened to Tommy Fleetwood on 18, um, even though that's not a Pete Dye setup but that that could carry over to this week and that he's learned from it and should be a better version of Tommy Fleetwood coming into Thursday. Well, I, I would be inclined to say that other than what happened at Bay Hill was an absolute mess. And you don't know quite how that's going to work out. Um, you don't know what that does to his confidence going into this week. I mean, he was just beat up just like everybody else was, but everyone takes that a little bit differently. Uh, it ended the cut-made streak that he has on the PGA Tour that was the longest uh, active streak, and now it belongs to Colin Morikawa. Um, so that changes some things a little bit psychologically, but he does have the game to do very well in this tournament. Uh, he has posted good finishes that the players have had. Those a couple of top 15s the last few years. So he knows how to play this golf course in there that works for him. It's going to be a little bit softer. Sounds like it's not going to be all that windy. Uh, so I, I caution that I think there are maybe more players this year that could win because it sounds like it's going to be soft-ish, and it sounds like it's going to be pretty calm. So compared to the two courses we've seen so far in Florida, it's going to be the easiest. It might be the easiest of the four in the entire Florida swing, which is kind of bizarre to think about, but I think that opens the door to more guys potentially win. What's interesting about this, uh, besides that, is that we're coming off a really, to me, interesting streak on the PGA Tour. So let's refresh everybody's memory. These are the winners in 2020. Justin Thomas in a wacky playoff. Cameron Smith, wacky playoff. Andrew Landry, Mark Leishman, Webb Simpson in a playoff very few people saw because it was on Super Bowl Sunday. Nick Taylor holding off um, a lot of big names at Pebble. Adam Scott winning in L.A. Victor Hovland, that breakthrough victory. Patrick Reed holding off the haters 
in Mexico, and now Sunjay M and Terrell Hatton. It, we have not had a repeat winner yet in 2020. We've had multiple time winners if you go back to the fall, but no repeat winners yet in 2020. And to me, a theme of this is twofold. Number one, Sunjay M continuing his strong, consistent play. And number two, Mark Leishman, who's gotten his name up there the last couple weeks. Do you think there's any carryover for Leishman or M coming into this week? Both are good ball strikers, and this is a ball strikers golf course, obviously. It is. I, I like both this week. Uh, I think in, you know, typically you would think about someone who's going on so many weeks of the season like him as that he would be tired or that maybe he would he would dip in his performance. But uh, clearly that's not the case. He's been there the last couple of weeks with a win and he was there at, at Bay Hill until the very end. So I think he is a guy, I mean, if you're looking for a kind of value play in, you know, the 20s and 30s, and if you're betting, I think he's your guy. I mean, he doesn't seem bothered by anything. Plays his game, he hits the ball great, putts okay enough to, to get the job done. Not the best chipper or putter, but if he's hitting green uh, like he has been, then he's going to be just fine. Uh, Leishman's been really interesting because he has played well at the courses where he's played well in the past. And usually that's a good sign. I think about J.D. Holmes similarly. When you play well at the places you're expected to play well based on your, your history, then you would, if so facto, it so that they're going to play well at the next place they like. I, I think Leishman likes uh, Sawgrass. He has a, one good finish here in the T13 here, but um, you, you'd think he'd play a little bit better at this golf course maybe, but that, that's neither here nor there. The Australian influence uh, is apparent on this golf course because so many Australians have done well in this championship. So it's kind of hard not to surmise that between those two things, they plan well, and that Aussies have historically done well in this tournament relative to the other nationalities that compete in it, that he's got a good chance. Ryan Ballinger here on uh, teeing it up with Jeremy Schilling. For, for, for me, what I wonder when it comes to Sun JM, and, and this is a larger thing that goes beyond just this week, can he burn himself out? It's an interesting question. He plays almost every week. He doesn't have a house. He enjoys it. Says he wants to play less this year, according to Dan Hicks. I'll believe it when I see it. Um, I find him fascinating, and I just hope he doesn't burn himself out. Well, I, I mean, he played, what, 35 events last year, which is the last season, I should say, which is one of the most in PGA Tour, modern PGA Tour history. The record, I believe, is 37. So he's he played a lot. He wanted to experience every event that he could, and now he has played himself uh, into a position where he really doesn't have a problem accessing any tournament, uh, at least for the next two years, because of his world ranking and his win. So we can he can scale back at any time, um, but he does seem like a guy who doesn't who's got nothing better to do. He doesn't have a house. He doesn't have a place to live. So what's he going to do with his time? To play golf, rack up money. Um, that, that kind of makes them really interesting as uh, being a little bit of a, a troubadour, you know, a traveling guy a little bit. Um, it would be interesting to see where he starts to scale back and when he starts to do it. Is he just going to play out the rest of this year kind of the way he intended? Uh, whether he was, you know, I assume he wanted to win, but he didn't have that in hand. Or is he kind of find a different way to play into the majors? I don't know. I mean, I, I think 
why mess with what works at this point? Then get to the off season or your where your stopping point is after the FedEx Cup playoffs, and then reassess and see if you want to do things differently for the next season. But I would imagine he's going to keep being the the robot machine that he is and just racking up top fifteens and twenties left and right. We will get back to talking about the Players' Championship in just a moment. We've had a bunch of stuff happen um, in the world, uh, well, in the in, in the world and the world of golf since you were last in the show. We're talking to Ryan Ballinger here on Teeing Up. Ryan, should we be playing this week at the PGA Championship? Uh, sorry, at the uh, Players' Championship? I think so. I mean, I've, I don't think that the spread of coronavirus is to the point yet that PGA Tour events can't be held or sporting events can't be held throughout a big chunk of America. I mean, I think it's what, 37, 38 states have reported cases at this point. It might be a little bit higher. I haven't checked the numbers today. But there are three states where there are a lot of cases, Washington, California, and New York, and then the others are relatively low. Florida is a relatively low state. It's starting to kind of creep up a little bit, but I think you can do it this week, and then I, I think you kind of have to start to reassess uh, where you go from here. But I also think it's a little bit different for PGA Tour events than, say, like a South by Southwest or Coachella or even a, a college or a university where you can have people come in and out so frequently that you're not really entirely sure where they're coming from, who they saw, and what they interacted with. But the PGA Tour from week to week, you have basically the same crop of 150 guys going from place to place with the same people living in hotel rooms or rented houses going from golf course to home or their accommodation and back. So their exposure is relatively low. Uh, for the public, other than the major championships, most of the people that come to those tournaments are local. So unless they're going to a, a market, then we can get to San Francisco, but unless you're going to a market where there's any kind of significant incidence rate, you're probably not going to pull in people from outside that metropolitan area. So I think golf is kind of uniquely, not quarantined, but um, siloed in a way that it, it's not necessarily going to be that big of a risk for someone on the PGA Tour to go play golf. And then the, the second thing that's happened in the world, and I'm with you, I, I think that Unless there is a threat that people deem for this event, we've got to keep going until health authorities tell us otherwise. It's it's a it's a unique situation. We don't know where this is going. Um, but if the CDC and the World Health Organization, the folks on this committee for the PGA Tour deem it safe, I would just trust them and just keep going on this. The other big news is we have this media deal now official. Um, and the way that I look at it, Ryan, is that the PGA Tour avoided what the USGA messed up. You and I are golf nuts. We will sit down and watch basically anything golf on television. And as we both know, having played junior golf and played amateur golf, um, not that I've played amateur golf, you have, um, and played in pro-ams and charity events and the like, there is nothing like events like the U.S. Mid-Am or the U.S. Women's Am or the U.S. Uh, uh, Girls Junior. These are events that are the U.S. Open for these people. And they're the events that have been sent to FS1 and FS2 and have gotten lost. Whereas if the USGA had kept with Golf Channel and NBC, they would have at least been in a place 
where people expect to find golf, which is Golf Channel. The PGA Tour looked at everything, including flipping two Turner networks, Warner Media networks, uh, HLN and Drew TV, which I found to be the stupidest idea on the face of the planet because you want people to understand where they're going. So for my money, by sticking with the incumbents, CBS, Golf Channel, NBC, by sticking with Viacom, CBS, and Comcast, they at least eliminated the where the heck is my golf and why can't I bleep and find it problem, which I would argue is a bigger problem than a lot of people even realize that it is in the game of golf. So I enjoy this. I am excited for, for PGA Tour Live to go back to ESPN+. Plus. I think it'll be a good fit for ESPN+, Plus and what that offers. And overall, I'm just really excited uh, about this TV deal, but very curious as to the stuff that we talk about all the time, which is, you know, CBS's problems and all that stuff, which we don't, I don't think quite know yet what the status of the CEO interview is and all the things like that. But for my money, the, the PGA Tour avoided the biggest problem by staying with the incumbents. I think so. I mean, I, they have, I, I think they worked it out very intelligently. They knew, they have known partners. I mean, they've worked for, with, you know, with NBC and CBS for decades. There's no reason to walk away from that. Uh, NBC needs uh, the PGA Tour desperately because otherwise there's no point in having a golf channel. Uh, and there may still not be a point having a golf channel, by the way. But they need PGA Tour coverage. They need a PGA Tour umbrella uh, as part of their rights package uh, of different sports that they offer. CBS basically needs the PGA Tour to fill a whole lot of airtime because of how much they've committed to the PGA Tour over the years. So they were willing to pay up. Uh, and they were willing to make what seemed like dramatic personnel changes, even though the production quality has not improved. They were willing to make those changes to secure that deal. And then when you align yourself with ESPN, you know, ESPN Plus service has proven very powerful. I mean, I think they have 8 million subscribers. I yeah. don't know how many of them are actually paid, but 8 million subscribers. Putting up money every month to watch their programming. So you're giving people another thing to check out. Um, you know, people cancel their either their Amazon Prime subscription or their NBC Sports Gold subscription, but... And they might already have ESPN Plus, so it'll be a pretty seamless transition. And the PGA Tour did the right thing for them, although it may not be the right thing for the fan in the end, but at least for them, in taking over the television compound and creating it every week so that they're basically the ones controlling which shots go where uh, and making sure everything's recorded, making sure everything can be distributed to the American partners, to Golf TV, which will handle all the international stuff, if not now, then in the next few years, and it'll kind of be more streamlined. So they gained some efficiency. They made 40% more money. They moved their digital streaming product to the best-in-class option. Uh, everyone wins, uh, it, you know, especially the tour, but everyone wins. You know, f for my money, too, um, Ryan, the compound thing, well, there's there's two, for me, there's two things. Number one, I feel for anybody who's going to lose their job because of the PGA Tour taking over the compound. Um, number, number two, the LPGA stuff is significant. Mike Wan has wanted 10 events on broadcast TV. This will get them to 10 events on broadcast TV. And a good job by them 
as part of the strategic alliance to work with CBS and NBC to figure out whether it's a time buy, whether it's just one round, but just all the stuff to get more stuff live, finishing on a broadcast network and more visibility. I thought that was a great job by Mike Wan, Rick Anderson, the folks who negotiated this uh, with and on behalf of the LPGA. Number two, um, the thing about the compound is, are we going to see the Max Homa shank into the TV tower? Are we going to see um, the Terrell Hatton finger and all that stuff, which we saw this past Sunday? State-run TV is, is what Jeff Shackelford has called it, and I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration to call it that, but there is a level of controlling the image you are putting out where I think as golf fans, we actually want to see them fucking up. We want to see them acting like everybody else because that's golf. That's hard. And you can't have this perfectionist image. It doesn't exist in golf. And I think that's the fear is where does this go in terms of what image they give off to fans by controlling the compound? Yeah, I think that's the, uh, that's the big question is what will the product look like? Will it, will it look like the, the tourist Twitter account where sometimes they will tweet out a video of someone hitting a bad shot and then if that player or that player's manager complains, it somehow disappears within minutes or hours and it, it just seems like it's, it's whitewashed. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, it sounds like the arrangement is the tour will control the television compound, but that the personnel or the broadcasting network that week will have control over calling the shot. We'll see how that works. I mean, the tour has been in the, the TV truck for a long time, um, and I don't think they've ever had that tremendous amount of an influence over which shot gets seen when. Um, otherwise, they probably would have done a whole hell of a lot better job at Riviera. Yeah. But I, I guess that's the fear. I think that's the natural fear for anyone who watches this, that... Um, and cares about who controls what rights and how they do it, is that ultimately the PGA Tour is trying to take more and more control over their product, how it's distributed, and how it's presented. And that could negatively affect the fans. Uh, Conversely, if I'm going to play devil's advocate, it work out to something like this week, where the Tour is taking a pretty cool step, although they're not the pioneer, but a pioneering step in streaming every hole, every player, every shot. That's great. Uh, if we can get more of that for the tournaments that matter, not saying I need it for the Flair Texas Open, but for the tournaments that matter most, then the fan wins because they can control their coverage. They can control what they see. So that it, it can go both ways. Uh, I, I know there's fear that it'll go the wrong way, but I think, I think there'll be some balance. What's interesting about what you just brought up with Every Shot Live this week um, is that everything except for the featured groups will have no commentators. How much natural sound do we put in there? Because for a Pete Dye golf course, you're going to get some people saying, God, I cannot believe how fucking horrible I'm hitting it today. Are they going to kill the natural sound from the mics? immediately out of fear or are they going to let this go and be open because if you let it go and be open you never know what will come out but you also may miss great nuggets that come from it um 
including the Jordan Spieth show, which is a constant television show. Um, excuse me. So that, to me, is an interesting question. How much natural sound do they keep up for these groups that are not going to have commentators on them this week? Well, my guess is that the tour has probably made crystal clear to all of the players, you will be on camera for every shot of your round. So assume that there will be a microphone around to hear you for every shot of your round. Um, that's not going to stop some guys. Tyrrell Hatton is going to say whatever the hell he wants. <laughs> and I'm sure other people will in the, the heat of the moment. But I think the tour has probably gone out of its way to make crystal clear to these guys that they, they don't want to embarrass themselves because it could be captured and there may be nothing they can do to stop it uh, from being broadcast, much less being screen recorded and then shared to the world. So yeah. I'm sure there's been some precautions. Uh, some advising on that point. I, I like that they're not going to have commentators. Not every it doesn't golf doesn't always need commentary. In fact, I think it needs less commentary, or it needs the right kind of commentary. So I hope that this week will be instructive for the tour to figure out the right mix for the next time they do this, whether that's during the that Cup playoffs, whether that's this event again next year, whatever it may be. But I think they'll figure out, okay, well, we need, you know, we need a, a, a one person per group, per hole. Or do we need just someone kind of describing the hole? Do we need just imagery? Do we need data and graphics and visualizations only? I mean, I, I think that's all still to be determined. Because what the Masters did wasn't broadcast every hole live. It was broadcast every shot on demand. So they... That made more sense just to edit the shot down to its core component and then show that. This is going to be a little bit different. So there'll be some things for this week. It's going to be very interesting. I am very curious to see how that plays out starting uh, Thursday morning. Uh, we're talking to Ryan Ballinger here on Teeing It Up. Um, let's just run through a couple things here um, quickly. Uh, you start with... Uh, Bryson DeChambeau, who's 20 to 1 odds, he's bulked up, and yet I feel like this is a golf course that you can overthink. Um, and there's, you know, you look at the odds right now Rory 13 to 2, Rom 11 to 1, JT 16 to 1, Bryson 20 to 1, DJ 25 to 1, Hideki 25 to 1, M 25 to 1, Fleetwood 25 to 1, Shawfleet 25 to 1. Then it goes Adam Scott, Cantley, Simpson, whatever. I feel like a Patrick Cantley who's more laid back and more just, I'm just going to go with the flow, um, is more likely to succeed on a golf course like this than Bryson DeChambeau. Am I wrong or am I right? Uh, I, I think Bryson is kind of starting to figure it out. I mean, he seems to have played his way out through his body, bodily changes, his body transformation. Uh, he seems very comfortable off the tee. I don't know if that will work out the best for him on this course, where you don't need a lot of drivers. Uh, you did need him the last couple of weeks, but uh, certainly need him Bay Hill with all the wind. But he he could overthink it. But I, I really like his chances this week. I think this is exactly the kind of tournament that Bryson DeChambeau could win. I mean, he stinks in the majors, but this is just enough of a setback for him 
that maybe it works out. Um, I mean, he seems to be chasing speed. Speed, if you can keep it in play, is going to set you up to do everything on this on this course. Uh, you just kind of have to take some bold lines on a few tee shots. But, I mean, he could fly it onto 12. Uh, he could reach 11 really easily if he gets a good drive. He leaves a mid-iron or less. Uh, he could take over nine. I mean, he could get on a nine with driver six iron. You know, he, it creates some opportunities for him to score. It also probably creates some awkward situations where if you're hitting a wedge on 17 or a nine iron, you know, whatever that number is for him, um, maybe he steps into one and goes in the water. But I, I really like his chances this week. Interesting. Um, that that's a very more optimistic view than I have, which is that here's somebody who could overthink himself. So that is a really interesting perspective. Uh, I had somebody ask me the other day, what's up with Brooks Kepka? And I said, I have no idea. Uh, the dude one week says he's healthy. Next week says he will never be 100%. Next week says he's 100%. Um, I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. Um, but I'm concerned. I mean, he's just, I think he kind of acknowledged that his knee is not where it needs to be and it may never be where it needs to be. And that precludes him from playing golf the way that he has since 2017. And either he's going to have to take an extended period of time off to rehab it or he's going to have to try to do this and play through it and figure out a way to deal with it and figure out a way to get in shape while playing at the same time. That's kind of hard to do. So I think you almost have to, you have to, to kind of say, okay, well, we're not, we're not expecting anything from Brooks in the future. I mean, he said after he's got 81 worst ever round at Bay Hill, even though it was in very difficult conditions and surprised a lot of the field. And then the next day was in 73. He said, well, my golf game is still shit. So obviously he feels like he's not quite there. And we also know he does have a proclivity for the regular championships, the non-majors. We know he's also put up a 53 here. But, I mean, the guy sitting at $10,200 on DraftKings and sitting in the 20s on the betting market, and I I think that's a fool's errand. There's no way you could put that kind of confidence in him. He doesn't have that kind of confidence in himself. Yeah, exactly. I think his, his struggle is trying to play the the power game with what power he had because his knees are going to stop him from doing a lot of that. So he's got to find a way to not twitch in his swing and not flare the ball out when he's trying to chase some yards. Uh, that's hard to do. That's really hard to do. I, I speak as somebody who tries to play a lot of power golf. When you don't feel right, especially in your legs and lower back, um, there's really not a whole lot you could do to adjust on the fly and start playing a, a more conservative brand of golf you feel good about playing. So, the, you're actually the perfect you're, person you to... You something like, hey, my knee feels good. I'm going to stay away from it. You're actually the perfect person to ask this of uh, because I, I forgot this offhand. You are a power player. He says that the knee doesn't bother him during the swing. It only bothers him during walking. And I'm like, if you look at the injury he had, and I won't try to uh, explain it because it may, may make some people... Uh, twinge but the injury that he had it's gotta hurt him during the swing right i mean as somebody who is a power player and has read what he's what he suffered how does that not hurt him during the swing 
Well, I don't... He, he may not feel it during the swing. He probably feels it after the swing. It's probably what happens. I mean, at least when I've played golf and not nearly have the same knee injuries he has, thank goodness. But when my knee is hurt or my leg is hurt, I don't feel it when I swing. I feel it after I swing. Mm. Uh, so that half second, it, I don't feel that pain. So I can understand where he's coming from. Um, and then you got to walk it off, and then your body has time to feel it and hurt. So I get what he's trying to say. It, it, his body feels it. He just doesn't feel it. And that's, that's what makes it also particularly hard because you don't know what's happening. You don't know why it's bad. You just know it's bad. And until you try to come up with a way to deal with it, with some kind of compensation in either how you swing, because you, if you don't feel the pain, then you think everything's fine, but you're compensating. You, you always compensate. So if you're compensating, you're doing something that's technically wrong or technically not right for you, and that's why he gets some of the results that he gets. He just doesn't even notice that his body's doing it because he says it doesn't hurt, it, but his body has to adjust. Interesting. Um, fascinating conversation. Glad we got that insight from you. So I forgot that you are a power player, so that this that 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 this comment would be good for you. One last injury thing before we make our picks. Jason Day. Um, I feel like the guy's just never going to be healthy, and this is one of the saddest things. But he's never been able to properly get his game back in order, and I don't think you can trust him the same way that I can't trust Jordan Spieth until I see it. I can't trust him until I see it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I feel like we've been seeing it for a couple of years now that Jason Day is closer to the end of the beginning, and he's admitted he has a chronic back problem. Um, it's just not going to get better. So you, it's Tiger, but a guy who's 30. You just have to manage what you can do, and on the weeks that you feel good, like a Tory Pine, Things go great. When you feel bad, things go terribly, like at Bay Hill, two years in a row. So it's it's also unpredictable for him because he withdrew from this tournament or from Bay Hill last year and then suddenly played great at the players. It's unpredictable, which is also part of the problem. You can't can't make uh, a consistent schedule. You can't do things you intend to do because you don't know if your body's going to comply yeah. so I think that's really hard for him at a certain point I guess he's just going to have to decide is it is it worth doing is it worth doing this the little dance for four or five decent finishes a year falling down the world ranking struggling to get past the first stage of the playoff stuff like that is it worth it to your body I, mean, he's probably, I don't know how much money he's paid between his endorsement deal and his on court earnings, but I'm sure it's more than enough to live the rest of his life very happily. So, if he doesn't want to deal with it anymore, I mean, maybe you give it a couple more seasons and uh, you you go the Tiger route and jack up your back with a fusion if, you, if that's what you need, or do you have back surgery and see if that helps? For a lot of people, back surgery doesn't help, uh, or it has a limited shelf life, as apparently Tiger's learning. Yeah, so, or see Steve Kerr, who after everything he's went through, has said publicly, uh, I just want to, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to make a medical advisement here after all of his issues with the complications. Do everything in your power to avoid back surgery, period, end of story. Yeah, uh, that's something a lot of people have said uh, to me personally who have had back surgery, just don't do it. Do everything you can to avoid it. So 
that tells you what Tiger was going through to have it four times, and that tells you what Jason Day is probably battling with right now. And you just got to decide, what do you want your quality of life to be? And is playing professional golf making it worse? Seems like it is. So at a certain point, you just decide, you know what, I won my major, I was number one in the world for the better part of the year. That's, that's good enough for me. Somehow he's got better odds this week than Phil Mickelson. That just does not seem right to me. Um, my winner this week is Patrick Cantlay. My international guy is Victor Hovland. And my you can't win is Bryson DeChambeau because he will overthink 16, 17, 18 on Sunday. How do you have this laid out? Uh, I guess, I mean, the, the guy I, I think everyone should like is Rory. I mean, he's lost like six guys so far this year. And yeah, he doesn't win a lot, but he's all, almost always there. How do you not like that? Um, it's kind of hard not to. I think Patrick Cantlay could be very good, uh, but he's not really that much of a, a shocker anymore. Um, I mean, I guess if you're thinking about someone a little bit deeper than you know that that odds range, Daniel Berger would be interesting. He's been playing pretty well, a little bit of a career resurgence. Yeah, he has um, been. Sixty to one. I mean, he's kind of interesting. I feel like Tony Finau has played extremely good golf this year. He's sixty to one. Um, so you're starting to think a little bit deeper. Uh, I mean, guys that can't win, there. I mean, how much time do you have? Ratif Goosen has no chance. Jim Herman has no chance. Uh, Jazz has no chance. Uh, I mean, there are a lot, a lot of guys who have no chance, but the interesting thing about this tournament is also that if you look at the statistics of the last, I think it's five years, I, I want to say Kenny Kim, uh, who does DFS, had this. Basically, every year, half of the world top 30 misses the cut at the play. So if you're looking at, at a top-heavy leaderboard, that does happen. But it just so happens, it happens, um, you know, basically, you're, you're rolling the dice. You're one, you're one of the 50-50 that has a chance to win, or you're, you're set back. So I guess if, if you're going to make me pick a, a can't, you know, has no chance among guys in the top 100 in the world, Phil Nicholson's my guy. He, he perennially now plays well in California and then just wet the bed for the rest of the year. So uh, I guess it'll be Phil. And um, my thing with Rory, I, I have nothing against him as a winner. I just wonder how much of this is a Sunday trend. Um, I mean, yes, Bay Hill might be the outlier. It was really tough conditions, but this has just been a thing. He can't. I don't know. I, I just feel uncomfortable picking Rory as a winner this week. I, I think his... I think if he's behind on Sunday, he's got a chance. But if he's ahead, I would be very wary. Very wary, considering his recent f- form in that spot. Yeah, I, I, I can't argue the point. I mean, I just can't. <laughs> yeah, it's been ugly. It has been very ugly. Ryan Ballinger, your appearances are never ugly. Um, thank you for coming on Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. And... Uh, Thank you, as always, for your insight. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. Subscribe, rate, review, do all that stuff, too.